Turn your Bible, please, to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah, the ninth chapter. There are two verses of Scripture that I would call to our attention in Jeremiah 9, verse 1 and 2, and verse 23. May we bow together in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of being together in Jesus' name this morning. And all that we have sensed as the congregation of God's people have met together to talk about Jesus and sing about Jesus. I pray that just now the Holy Spirit will take the message beyond the words of the preacher. May the words and the voice of Jesus be heard. We pray that someone who is without Jesus will open his heart to Christ today. Jesus' name, amen. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and verse 23, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterous, an assembly of treacherous men. And verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord who exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. We stand today at the end of a year. And I'm lighting this light at the pulpit to just simply remind us that we do not have as long as we did have. And as that light flickers through this service, may it remind us that we only have five days left of 1982. Jeremiah preached in the long ago. He wept over his people. He gave them a warning that they didn't have very long. They didn't pay much attention. They didn't listen. They went on in their treachery, in their sin, in their careless indifference. And then the judgment day came in the year 585 when the Babylonian horde swept across the desert, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, besieged that city for two years. And the people became so hungry, they 
killed their own little children and ate them. And then the Babylonians sacked the city, tore down the walls, burned the temple, and took the people of God captive. There's no way in the world those people could say, well, we didn't know this was going to happen. Jeremiah had told them, and then he told them that he told them, and then he told them that he told them that he told them. They didn't listen. They paid no attention whatsoever. Jeremiah cried out, Oh, that mine eyes were just rivers of water, that I might weep for the people. I wonder today who weeps. Who weeps over Bowling Green? Who weeps over the hurts of the people? In 1 Samuel 1, 8 and John 20, 13, the question is posited, why weepest thou? In 1 Samuel eleven five, what aileth the people that they weep? In 1 Samuel 34, no more power to weep the people of God had. In Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there's, there's a, it speaks of a time to weep. In Psalm 6, 8, the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. And in Joel 2, 12, turn to me with fasting and weeping. It's time for us to weep over the burdens, over the hurts, because we do not have very much longer to do it. And I want to suggest this morning that in the face of all the problems and burdens that America faces and that you have faced, and in the face of the times in which we live, we need to be serious, compassionate, burdened over the burdens and the hurts of the people of the world. Last night, half the world went to bed hungry hunger pangs gnawing in their stomachs. In Africa, there's a plague of famine. There's little children, like in India, dying of malnutrition. Some of that perhaps even going on in America. Physical hunger. There are people all around us with broken hearts, burdened souls, they have looked on their right hand and on their left and they sense no one really cares. Refuge fails me. Nobody cares for my soul. I look into the faces of some of our dear people this morning who in these past months have gone through severe trial, testing of your faith, standing by loved ones. You've seen their life ebb away. Some of you have received a phone call, maybe in the night. Somebody dearer than life itself has been taken suddenly in death. Others of you have had some experiences that are worse than death. We've had burdens. Some folks have faced climactic problems, heartaches. And this candle 
burning here this morning. Already having burned way down reminds us that the hurts and the burdens and the discouragements and all the things that have plagued our lives in 1982 can be soon put aside for we go into a new year. We go into a new period at the end of this week. Friday, after we've met for a fellowship supper and we've heard some preaching and we're on our knees in a prayer vigil, there'll be some bells and they'll ring out all the sad and the gloomy and the heartaches and the hurts of 1982. And they'll ring in the new joys and freshness of 1983. But those bells that ring out all the sad things will also ring out opportunities that we have passed, forever gone. We'll never repeat this Sunday again. We'll never repeat this past Christmas again. We'll never repeat the things that have occurred in our lives. We'll never have the same opportunities. And Jeremiah was calling out to the people, oh, that I could call you somehow to attention. If I could get your attention with my tears so that we could weep over what we have left undone, what we have left without accomplishing. The hurts, all the despairs, and all of our sins, and many of the things we have brought upon ourselves, if we could turn away from these, if my tears could only be a symbolic reminder to you to turn away from these and turn quickly to the Lord, then everything would be all right. That's what Jeremiah is saying. We read the last chapter and we discovered everything wasn't all right because the people wouldn't listen. They didn't pay any attention and things grew tragically worse. With this in mind, and with the thought that there are many, many problems facing us as Christians, I found this clipping. More than 17 million boys and girls are growing up in our land without spiritual training of any kind. 37 million young people under the age of 25 are without any kind of religious instruction. Public school teachers of New York City found 860,000 children in their schools without any knowledge of the Bible and void of all sense of right and wrong. They attributed this condition to lack of Bible training in the home. 85% of present day crime is committed by youths under 25 years of age. Statistics on 10 thousand criminal cases showed 85% of these young criminals did not attend Sunday school. In 1855, America was recognized as the most law-abiding nation in the world. Today, according to the American Bar Association, it is the most criminal, and the moral and spiritual fiber of our nation is the lowest in all of history. Now, we as believers, what can we do about this? We're living in, a, in an age when it's hard to know what to do. I wish we had quick, easy answers 
to all of the problems. Some people say, well, I'm too old to do anything about it. Some people say, well, I'm too young to do anything about it. We can all do something. Benjamin Franklin was 81 when he helped create the United States Constitution. He had already had an early start at age 16 when he was a newspaper columnist, Ben Franklin, when he was 16. Mozart was seven years old when his first composition was published. George Bernard Shaw was 94 when one of his plays had its first performance. William Pitt was 24 when he became Prime Minister of Great Britain, and Goldra Mare was 71 when she became Prime Minister of Israel. None of us is too old or too young to accomplish something, the thing that God wants us to accomplish. And if the burning of the candle, or if the weeping of our, the tears of our eyes, or the indignity of standing in a pulpit and crying and shouting and hollering and urging people to come to grips with the times in which we live, if that'll help any, then let's be willing to do it. I want to lay this on our hearts. If we only had five more days to accomplish what we would accomplish for life, and our life would be snuffed out at the end of Friday, if we just had five days to do it, what would we do? Well, I want to suggest some things to us this morning. Number one, I'd want to make sure of my destination. I want to make sure of where I'm going. Lots of people go through this world and they don't have any idea where they're going or what they're going to do. I think one of the problems with some young people in high school is purposelessness purposelessness. Sometimes that's true of young people in college also. Of course, when people are juniors or primaries, rare is that individual who has come to grips with what he is going to accomplish in life. Some have, most have not. And you would expect them to run around and play and just be, have mainly playthings and toys as their main routine. But when a person becomes a teenager and he gets into 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and he's still purposeless, he has no anchor, he has no goal, he has no sense of mission, just what girlfriend am I going to have today? Or what boyfriend will I have tomorrow? Well, that's about it. There's a severe problem. I want to say to every one of us, we need to have some destinations in mind. Back years ago, I was at the train station in Louisville at the old Union Terminal. My dad was a railroader, and I knew the station master, and I went in the station master's office. I was in there talking to him, just a young boy. This has flashed on my mind. A man came in that station master's office, and he said, when do you have the next train out? The, master, the train master said, well, where do you want to go? He said, it doesn't make any difference. When do you have the next train out? I want to get on it. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't really care where he was going, but he wanted to go somewhere. There are lots of people like that. They don't have any idea where they're going. They don't have any sense of destiny. They have no sense of destination. They have no sense of purpose. I want to suggest to you that we need a purpose for life. Why are we here? What are you trying to accomplish? What is God's plan, blueprint, blue, uh, purpose for your life? 
First of all, we need to know where, where we're going to spend eternity. We need to know that we're saved. Not everybody talking about heaven is going there. One of the saddest things, as I think about it, would be to see at the end of life somebody who has gone to church, somebody who has done some religious things, and yet he has no assurance in his heart he's going to heaven. Somebody that has heard the preaching of the Word and has never responded to that preaching. Dr. Lee tell, used to tell the story of the man that was very, very sick in the hospital in New Orleans and the nurse called for Dr. Lee to come. He went up there to see him. He sat down with him. The man said, Dr. Lee said, tell me your name. He said, I'm the king of the kangaroo court. That's my name. And he looked at him, all the wild eyes. He said, I heard you preach lots of times. I heard you preach lots of times. But he had no destiny. He had no assurance in his heart. He had allowed the preaching to go over his head or in one ear and out the other. And it never moved his heart. It never moved his life. He never did anything about it. Some of you have been under the preaching of the Word of God. You have heard it taught in Sunday school. You've heard it by radio. You've heard it by television. You've been in the churches and you've heard God's Word, but you have never let it have a lodging place in your heart. You've sat there and talked to each other during church and laughed with each other, but you've never allowed God's Word to take lodging in your heart and give you a purpose and a reason for living to determine where you're going to spend eternity. The Bible says there are only two places to spend eternity. One is heaven. The other is an awful godless place Jesus called hell. Separation from God forever and forever and forever. But God doesn't want anybody to go there. It is not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Jesus came from the glories of heaven, and he came to the awful gory place of Calvary, and there he died for my sins and your sins, that if we'll open our hearts to him, he'll cleanse us and forgive us. It is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so I want to urge you to have a destination in life, a destiny. Look forward to heaven. In Sunday school today, we talked about the songs of heaven. If you don't enjoy singing here, you're going to have a hard time in heaven because we sing a lot in heaven. They sing about the Lamb. They sing about the Lamb who was slain. They sing about the holiness of God. They sing about the Creator and worthy as the Lamb because He was with God in creation. They sing the great Amen chorus. They sing in heaven. If you don't enjoy singing, you're going to have a hard time there. But I want to ask you, do you know for sure you're on your way to heaven? Do you have the assurance in your heart that Jesus is your personal Savior and Lord? Not just the Savior of the world, but your Savior. Have you come to a point in life where you said, Jesus, I've received you. I've asked you to come into my heart. I want you. If you've done that, then thank God and go on your way rejoicing that your name is written in heaven. Secondly, if I only had five days, I'd want to make a special study of God's Word and know something about 
this book. This book has the message about my future home. It has the message about how to live here in this earth. I'd want to study it. And so I'd want to get in Sunday school, and I'd want to get in training union. I want to get into the organizations that major on studying the Word of God and study it, get to know something about its message and what it's trying to say to us. I'd want to read it through. I'd like to challenge you today, everybody in this room and everybody within the sound of my voice to determine that in 1983, you're going to read the Bible through chapter by chapter. It's only a few chapters, a day, three, four, five, and you'll have the Bible read through in a, in a year. You read 10 chapters a day, you can read it in six months. You read 20 chapters a day, you can read it in a lot less time. Most of us do not have that much time to give, but we can give some time to the reading of God's Word. And let me encourage us to do it. What a wonderful accomplishment it would be if when we sit here next year, those of us who are still in the world, who have not been taken out into eternity, if we could say, I've read the Bible through this past year. I challenge you to do it. Get its message into your heart. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Then I'd like to obey its injunctions. Find out what the word of God is teaching and, and do it. Be not a hearer of the word only, but be a doer of the word. What is the word saying? Well, in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus said, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. This simply means that when we receive Christ as our personal Savior, we need to let others know about it. Some of you have been saved. You've asked Jesus to come into your heart, but you've never confessed him openly. The first thing God wants us to do after we're saved is to let others know it. We could get a microphone and go out all over the area and say, hey everybody, I just got saved. And really there'd be nothing wrong with that. But that isn't what God commands you to do. He does command you, however, to go to God's house, to take a stand there when the invitation is given. Come forward and let us tell the church this person is one of us now. He has received Jesus as Savior and he's going on with God. That's obeying the first injunction after we become a Christian. But there are other things God wants us to do. After we're saved, God wants us to love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. How often I've heard people say, well, I just tell you, I, don't, I can't love that person. I just don't want to be around them. I don't enjoy them. I, I just don't like them. The greatest thing that can be said about a church is they love each other over there. The greatest thing that can be said about a family is not that they have a beautiful home or three cars or they had a great big Christmas dinner or they had a huge Christmas tree or they had 2,500 packages under the tree. The greatest thing that can be said about a family is they love each other. The greatest thing that can be said about the family of God is they love each other. We can put aside all the little foolish differences, bury them in the past year, and go on through the threshold of a new year 
with love in our hearts one for another. It's not hard to love when we realize how much God had to overcome to love us. You think of your life. You think of all the things about your life, ugly things. You think of the spurs on your personality. You think of the way you rub rub people the wrong way. You think of the many times that you disobeyed God. And then you think, well, God loved me anyway. God so loved me anyway. It isn't hard for us to love somebody else when we know how God loved us. Then let's be filled with love one for the other. Because the love covers a multitude of sins. And then we want to find in the Bible the injunctions of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it the elders obtained a good report. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for they that come to Him must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Faith is the greatest triumph on earth. Faith overcomes pasts. Faith overcomes hurdles. Faith overcomes sin. Faith overcomes sorrow. Faith overcomes indebtednesses. Faith overcomes that feeling for desire for vengeance. There were men of faith in the Bible. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, by faith Abel, by faith Moses, by faith Sarah, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith Barak, by faith Samuel, and on and on and on, men and women of faith. I want to challenge us to be men and women of faith. There will be some real tests of faith in the days ahead. But if we're going to be what God wants, if we're going to accept the challenge that Jeremiah would pass down to us, we need to be men of faith. I give you this question. Faith finds out what God wants and then begins to do it. And it is dumb to doubts and dead to impossibilities. That's what faith is. Faith finds out what God wants and begins to do it, not because we feel it, not because we feel like it, but because God said it, and we believe God. I reread this week the story of, of Abraham and Sarah. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. When Abraham was 30 or 40 years old, God said, you're going to have a son. When he was 50 or 60, God said, you're going to have a son. Abraham told everybody, I'm going to have a son. But there was no son born. Sarah was almost the same age as Abraham. When Abraham was 70 years old, he said, I'm going to have a son because God said I would have a son. And when Abraham was 99 years old, God appeared to him and said, Abram, you're going to have a son a year from now. And he told Sarah, and Sarah laughed. And the angel said, do you laugh at God? 
With men, this is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. The Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now listen, Abraham didn't wait till he had a son to tell everybody he had a son. He said, I have a son, I have a son, a son of promise. God promised me. He took me out one night and he said, look up at the stars as the stars of heaven are innumerable. So will your seed be innumerable and it will be from your loins. Now, beloved, God is able to raise up sons where there seems no way. God is able to provide your funds that you need. Some of you are going through a testing time financially. You can either wring your hands and walk the floor and visit psychiatrists and go out of your mind and take tranquilizers, or you can look up and say, God, I'm yours. I have no mind in this matter. I give it to you. This is your life. and this is, I'm yours. I ask you to take care of me. And our Bible says God will do it. My God is able to supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God said that. Faith takes that promise of God and says, God, you said that. I'm going to hide it in my heart and believe you. I challenge us to be men of faith. Let's not wait around and say, God, you've got to prove it first. Years ago, when Glendale Baptist Church first started, you read in the history of the church, our people had nothing. There are very few people here today that were here then, but they had nothing. One man mortgaged his house and bought that piece of property on Jones Avenue and let the church pay for it a little bit at a time. There's some folks who say a church ought never to go in debt. There'd be no Glendale Baptist Church if we hadn't gone in debt to build that, buy that little house over there. And then we didn't have any money and the people were coming, had to build a little lean-to shelter out there. Did that on borrowed money. And then we looked for property hunted all over everywhere, finally found this sinkhole. You don't believe it. That's what it was. Some of you still recognize it when you go down in the basement when it rains. And bought this just one little plot at a time. Somebody said the other day, why didn't you buy clear over to Small House Road when you could have bought it for a little of nothing? We didn't have any money. Had to borrow the money we we did to buy little lot by lot. Borrowed money to build that first unit. Didn't have any floor in it, just a dirt floor, no petitions. 1959, we had $50 in a building fund. Our committee got on the, their knees before God and then when we finished praying, they said, let's get the dairy tomorrow and go out here and start building. That was the flat roof building. On and on. On and on. Men of vision, men of faith, who've been willing to say, if God is telling us to do it, let's do it. Let's not wait until some greenbacks are in. Let's trust God. Now, beloved, let's be men of faith and women of faith in your personal lives, in your home, in your spiritual lives, with your children. And in God's work, let's be men of faith.
to accomplish bold, great things for God. And let's be done with the littleness of our own lives, the little sins that would so easily beset us. Hebrews 11 says, Hebrews 12 says, wherefore seeing we're encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Everybody in this room has a sin or a, or a, or a weakness in your life. Some people it's liquor. Some people it's lust. Some people it's greed. Some people it's gossip. Some people, some other kind of little sin. Maybe nobody knows about it, just you and God. God says, lay it aside. You don't need it. It's excess baggage. You don't need to take it into the new year with you. Lay it aside. It'll cause heartaches and griefs and sorrows and tears and disappointments. Lay it aside and let us walk in faith. Go on in faith, believing. Thirdly, if I knew that life would end in just five days, I'd want to make a survey of my will. Number one, my human will. I won't be sure it's yielded to the will of God. I've watched some people die. What a blessing to see them yield little by little to the will of God, the plan of God. I don't understand human suffering. Some people say it's all from the devil. I'm sure that the scripture teaches that nothing can come into our lives except by the permissive will of God but I don't understand all that that's caused by. But I do know that I need to examine my own will and see if I'm willing to suffer, see if I'm willing to yield, see if I'm willing to stay at my post of responsibility and duty whether I feel like it or don't feel like it. Husbands and wives, you're married to one another. Don't seek to get a separation because you somehow have incompatibility get before God and let God help you with that. Put those things aside and yield to the will of God in your life. And then I'd want to examine the document of my will. Christians, I believe every believer ought to have a will made out. No matter how old or young you are, you own something. Have a will made out, a document, will, Otherwise, when you die, there's confusion and nobody knows exactly what to do. Make a will out. I think these next four or five days, you ought to go make a will out. Write your will. You may not have very much to leave, but you've got something to leave. And instead of leaving it all for your families to fuss over, why not put the Lord in your will? Put God's work in your will. One of the most beautiful things I ever heard of was a very precious lady. Used to be, was a, was a charter member of our church. She moved away. I hadn't seen her for some time. I got a call to come and help her with her funeral. And sometime after her funeral, an attorney wrote me and he said, this lady used to be a charter member of your church? I said, yes. She said, he said, well, she left, 
some money in her will for your church. She hadn't even been here for years. She did that because it was in her heart. Let me encourage us to take care of the things that are important while we can take care of those things that are important. Last of all, I'd want to make a search for souls. Find people that need Jesus. Do everything I could to bring them to faith in Christ. God has souls on his heart. And I believe he would put souls on our hearts. And he would cause us to weep over the things that break the heart of God. Listen to this. Who weeps over Bowling Green? I thought I've often wondered. I myself have failed to pay such cost on bended knees, heart turned heavenward, hands held upward, holding before God relatives, friends, neighbors, those in darkness lost. Who weeps over Bowling Green, where sin has countless tolls, heavy laden in schools, homes, streets, and hearts misunderstood, children weeping in the night, homes broken, these sin has changed, shackled even moral ones whose good deeds will burn as wood. Who weeps over Bowling Green? Preachers do, some say, working countless hours, visiting the sad, broken-hearted, lonely, preaching fervently from their pulpits of God who loves them all, yet without tears, incessant pleas, no power from God, theirs only. Who weeps over Bowling Green? Deacons do, some say, undergirding their pastor, caring for elders, leading church members, forming committees, taking in countless responsibilities, yet without tears, incessant pleas, a dimly burning ember. Who weeps over Bowling Green? Sunday school teachers, some say, spending hours in deep study, lessons prepared and detailed with worry, every week visiting class members and seeking out new ones, yet without tears, incessant pleas, their work causes hardly even a flurry. Who weeps over Bowling Green? Bus pastors do, some say, frequenting homes of many who hardly even care, driving by those homes every Sunday morning in hopes they'll come, yet without tears, incessant pleas, such fruit they cannot bear. Who weeps over Bowling Green? I wish I could, I wish I could, some say, knowing this, my friend, such evidence of love is nothing we can do, for Jesus weeps for Bowling Green. And putting aside ourselves, He'll weep through me and you. Who weeps over Bowling Green? God give us many more with vision far beyond our realm that sees the other shore. Are you willing? Are you willing to get serious about the things that God is serious about? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we've talked this morning just some family matters with God's church. We pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to every heart and may somebody who needs Jesus come to Jesus. And may God's people determine to get serious over the things that God is serious over. And to ask you for the compassion to weep. In Jesus' name, amen.
Will you stand, please? We're going to sing God's invitation. Remember, this is the invitation of the Lord. It isn't mine. And I want to ask you to do this. If you're here this morning and you need the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, I want to ask you to come to Him just as you are. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If you've been saved, you need to publicly confess Christ as your Savior. And when we begin singing in a moment, I'm going to be standing down here. You need to come. And let me just say to the church, this young man, this young woman has trusted Jesus. They're not ashamed of Christ. Just want to share that with everybody. If you've never been saved, I want to urge you to come to Christ just as you are today. If your membership is in some other church and God wants you here at Glendale, you come. While we begin to sing, who'll come first for the King? Would you step out for him? There may be somebody who would like to say, I want to get serious with the things of God. I want to ask God for tears. I want to weep like he weeps over Bowling Green. While we sing, will you come?